Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast with Dr. Kim Moss. We are here to move you forward in the call of God for your life, your career, and your ministry through prophetic insight, practical teaching, and powerful conversations with influential leaders. Never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Move Forward with Dr. Kim Moss. I am your host, Dr. Kim Moss, of course, and I am so excited. I've been waiting for this particular episode for, for a little while now, and I have my very special guests, Dr. Mark Sharona and Dr. Chris Green with me. We want to talk about uh, the prophetic, but let me tell you who they are first. So Mark Sharona has been in the people helping business for more than four decades with a media presence spanning almost more than 175 nations. His message of wholeness through the integration of the spiritual and psychological is heard across the globe. He has a father's heart for emerging generations and serves as the presiding bishop of Legacy Edge Alliance, which is a worldwide fellowship of senior apostolic leaders and churches. And you're a bishop now over another group. Oh, Bishop Dr. Protector. Sharona. So, um, yeah, that, that would be more the title Bishop Protector. It doesn't change my bishopric. It just means over the order of a Maximus. Uh, okay. All I serve, right. serve as the overseer for that. All right. So Bishop Sharon is regarded as, in, as an influential leader whose global reach, clarion voice, and prophetic insight are respected by leaders and followers alike. As an avid student, Dr. Sharon is a theosemiotician. It's hard to say. Say that seven times over and over. Holding a doctorate of ministry and future studies, as well as an MA in psychology. He's also an author, BCC certified coach, and is currently seeking a PhD is there news on that? I've submitted the final draft. I'm waiting on my, my oral exam. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. At the University of Birmingham, U, uh, United Kingdom. And he's the founder and senior pastor of Church on the Living Edge in Orlando, Florida. He and his wife, Ruth, have two adult sons and four grandchildren. You can find out more about Dr. Sharona and his resources by uh, going to MarkSharona.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, The Church on the Living Edge. And please get his book new book on the edge of hope which is fantastic and really will speak to all that we're going through after the pandemic and everything else has gone on in the world now chris green chris ew green is a professor of public theology at southeastern university in lakeland florida director of saint anthony institute and a teaching pastor at sanctuary church in tulsa oklahoma where he lives with his wife julie and their sons clive and emory i love those names he's author of a number of books including surprised by god sanctifying interpretation and all things beautiful and one i just picked up that i'm going to start reading that is from your dissertation on the Pentecostal theology of the Lord's table, you call it, or it's communion, as I know yeah. it. And yeah. <laughs> you can find him at cewgreen.com. You can find him at uh, cewgreen.substack.com. Look him up for speakeasy theology and uh, Facebook and Instagram. Mark and Chris treasured friends of mine. I feel so privileged to call you friends. I hold you in such high esteem. Your hearts, your wisdom, your knowledge, just invaluable gifts to me and the body of Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness, your life in Christ. And thank you for being my guest today on Move Forward, Dr. Kim Musk. It's great to be here. It is. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> 
All right, so I want to get started. I've been looking forward to this. So each of you guys have a have a unique perspective on the prophetic ministry, and I really want to talk about uh, prophecy and prophets and prophetic function and all those things today. But to get us started, I'll start with you, Dr. Sharona. Can you can you share with us your history with the prophetic movement a little bit? How did that? How did your history shape your personal value for prophetic ministry? Wow. So. We're taping this in December of 2022. So 49 years ago, December 73, I had a radical encounter with Jesus. And within a matter of weeks was radically filled with the Holy Spirit and found myself speaking in tongues. And I led my band to Jesus. We were getting ready to do a bunch of things um, in what was called the Borscht Belt in New York, the Catskills um, Entertainment and, and in Vegas. And uh, I led the band to Jesus and we began to travel and sing. And while I was doing that, I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in Wagner, Wagner College. And a few of us were filled with the spirit. And so at that time, InterVarsity had a seek not, forbid not sort of a an approach. So the director at the time was deeply upset that we would pray for people to be filled with the spirit, but we did it anyway. And we ended up having like a sort of a mini revival in six or seven months. And we led about 120 or 130 people to Jesus and started having nightly prayer meetings. And early on in those prayer meetings, I would have these impressions and my heart would beat really fast. And I wouldn't know what to do with that. And I would just start giving voice. I didn't know there was an I didn't know there was an utterance called prophecy, but I was doing that. I didn't know that if I got a I said someone is sitting here and you have this in your body, but God is healing you and they were healed. So so the charisms began to operate uh, without me understanding what was going on. And it wasn't until I began to plug into Salem Gospel Tabernacle in Brooklyn, Malcolm Smith at the time was there because Malcolm was coming on Monday nights to InterVarsity to address us and teach us. And I was so impacted and many of the young converts were going over to Brooklyn. And so I started going there and I be that became my church home. And that's where I first began to develop an awareness of prophetic function and prophetic expression. So, wow, that's, that's it. So when did you, okay, I have, I have to ask this question because through the years, um, I used to see you on occasion, like on TBN or like that, right? And um, I didn't know you then. Um, I only saw you, and I, but I sure loved the way you dress. I always <laughs> loved the way you dressed. And <laughs> but, um, but I've known you as Prophet Mark Sharona. I mean, I know you now as Bishop and Doctor, but I knew you as Prophet Mark Sharona. When did you? When did you know that? about yourself okay so just for the record people have called me prophet i've okay. never taken that to myself so that was the way people promoted me because i moved in the prophetic i've never honestly i've never been comfortable with prophet or apostle as titles for okay. reasons that i hold theologically that i can argue i don't want to create a fuss over that, but I've, I see prophetic and apostolic as functionary. Um, 
And so I, back in the 70s, there was a big deal about, well, we need to recognize apostles and prophets and give them those titles. Well, um, that's fine, but it, it, it's not something I ever, I, I never, I was promoted as that without being asked, how do you want to be identified? So when they began to ask me, how do you want to be known? I said, well, I'm a bishop. And that was back in the, in the days when TBN, when that door opened, because prior to that, I was just a traveling preacher. I moved in the prophetic and uh, people call me that. I never, honestly, I never referred to myself that way. So um, I can understand that you would have known me that way. I just never, <laughs> never related to myself as finding my identity in that descriptive. I totally understand that people, people call me that or know me as that. I've never felt like I was that. And I, I don't like having that title either. I much prefer, well, I much prefer just called, you know, Pastor Kim. That's, that's really what I prefer. But um, anyway, but thank you for that. Very good. Chris, what about you? Yeah. So I grew up in old school, classical Pentecostalism. And my, my great-grandmother was a church planter. I grew up in the church that she planted, in fact. And we, I didn't know it at the time, but we actually had a, a rather idiosyncratic view of prophecy. So we, we, we believed there were prophets. But a lot of our spirituality, I and mean, here I'm talking about the 70s and 80s, a lot of our spirituality was shaped over against what we saw as the abuses of the charismatic movement. So we had moments of prophecy, but in our churches, there was a lot more speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues than there were prophetic moments. So it, there were moments of prophecy, but it was pretty rare. And often in preaching and teaching, they would say prophecy is not something that you can claim to possess and use as you will. It's something the spirit does. Right? So they, they had Again, in the in the scheme, big scheme of things, they had a relatively odd view of prophecy, but it was a part of, of my life. So then I go to Bible school. I have what would now be called a kind of deconstruction moment in my life. And I was pretty skeptical about a lot of what I was seeing in the Pentecostal charismatic movement at large. Now, now questioning not only the broader charismatic movement, but also the Pentecostalism that had formed me. And... And I, in college, there were a handful, two or three moment, prophetic moments that really directed the course of my life, including what connected me to my wife. And one was a personal experience, experience I had of a prophetic word in relation to her. And then another was from a woman on the campus who was kind of known for giving prophetic words at the drop of a hat and throwing the hat down so she could give the words. And I was, I won't get into the full story now, uh, but I was waiting on the moment of confrontation with her for her to try to prophesy to me. And I was going to set the record straight for her, pick the hat up and put it back on her head, I guess, to use the, to use the and instead she gave me a word about my about Julie, that would be the one who would know that that really redirected the course of my life. And that humbled me in exactly the way I think I needed in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there were many more humiliations to follow, but that was a, a <laughs> really important, that was a vital one. 
And so I think that that opened me up to imagining the prophetic differently. Th those experiences did. And then as a theologian and as a pastor, of course, in Pentecostal circles over and over and over again, I've been drawn into those conversations at various levels of intensity. Right? One of the courses I taught at Oral Roberts University back in the day, Oral Roberts University, remember, was Oral charismatic. <laughs> exactly. Uh, was charismatic spirituality. And all of the students had been raised in churches where the prophetic was dominant. And many of them had been harmed by it. And then a few of them aspired to work in it. Right. And so several for several years teaching that course, I, I was able to do kind of deep dive studies on the history of Christian understanding of the prophetic. And that was also life transforming for me to realize that prophecy didn't end with the death of the last apostle and then start again with my great grandmother. <laughs> like uh, Christians have been practicing prophecy, discerning it, giving and receiving it for a very long time at, in every corner of the globe. And, and that there is a, a wisdom there we, we don't want to lose touch with. That's so good. I don't think I've ever shared <clears throat> my background with prophecy. I told you a little bit just before we got on, but I, I was Southern Baptist, so I didn't know any of this. And we were actually, my family was nominal, you know, Christians. My parents were divorced and remarried peoples. And so um, they sort of didn't feel comfortable a lot in the church because they sort of had like a scarlet letter a little bit in those days because they were divorced. And um, so we went, we, we went fairly regularly, but you know, it wasn't like the thing in our family. And, um, but when I, when I got a little bit older and of course uh, God miraculously healed my marriage, then we felt like we should start going to church. So there was a church in town that we went to that was four square. So Pentecostal and, um, and, but it was very seeker sensitive. And so we were going there just to be close to Jesus. And he'd done this thing in our lives. So we knew we needed to go there, but I had no idea. Even I had a call in my life. And then I went to a, I went to a woman's retreat. I got wrecked by the Holy spirit, just completely, completely changed in a moment. Like it hard to even explain what, what it was like for me. I was so changed and then started having, these experiences with the Lord started like dreams and visions and, and, and the same, like what you described, uh, Mark, when you said that you started knowing things, like just knowing things about people and, and I would pray them. And so people would like, you know, that you're prophesying and it'd be like, no, I didn't know anything about the gifts. And, um, but I started seeking out cause our church was so seeker sensitive. I started seeking out. Um, I mean, we prayed in tongues. That was our gifts in the, in the Pentecostal circle that I ran in and I started seeking out. So my early experiences and training actually came from, from, um, the renewal sort of movement, the, the, uh, you know, uh, at new life church in, in Colorado Springs and, um, my auditorium with Cheon and the, and that group of people. And, uh, I didn't meet, uh, I didn't start getting grounded in my theology till I went to school uh, under Jack Hayford and then with Randy Clark, which um, in these days, in the last couple of years, especially since meeting you, uh, Dr. Sharona, 
um, I feel like I'm going through a little bit of a deconstruction, sort of unlearning some of the things that I feel like um, need correction uh, in my my own life, my own understanding, and uh, and from things that I have learned along the way and picked up that you don't even realize sort of just get integrated in how you how you practice these things. And of course, uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on uh, what I saw as a prophetic community out of Acts chapter two in Peter's speech, and um, and found that cessationism wasn't wasn't really supported by scripture and theology and history. And uh, so I did all those studies and I did that study, not, not as much. I love the gift of prophecy and I think prophecy is so important, but because the voice of God, hearing the voice of God changed my life. And I, and I want people to hear the voice of God, but we want them to do it healthily. So a few years ago, we have experienced some troubling events in the prophetic movement. And, um, and of course, you know, I think that uh, they were building up until that time. And then, of course, we, we had the elections. We have the, had the pandemic and we've been through crazy time. And our nation, it sort of just uncovered a lot of stuff. But it has given, uh, has given a lot of uh, fodder for um, those outside those circles to say, see, this is, this is craziness, how all this has gone and um, and I'm not so concerned about that. What I have been concerned about is that we receive the correction that God wants to bring and get back to biblically, theologically correct operation of uh, within the gifts and prophetic function, which um, is something I'm learning more about through you. Dr. Sharona. So, um, so I have a few questions about that. So I would like to hear from you, from each of you. How, how do you feel like we got here? How did we get to the place where we have just people saying all kinds of things that don't come to pass and then defending it. And then there, it seems like there's no accountability. Like, I mean, how did we get here in your opinion? Go ahead, Chris. I don't think you're allowed to do that. Redirect it to me. Uh, you know, it's 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 a, obviously a, a complicated root system. I think one thing worth naming is the ways in which the, in the in the eighties and nineties the prophetic movement globally started to and Bishop can say more about this than I know because he was present in these settings. I've just read about them and heard about them. But there seems to have been a kind of overconfidence about what we could accomplish, a downplaying of risks, a kind of naivete about what's at stake in the prophetic. And it had to do with economic growth, as we understood it, and the standard of life. It's complicated, again. But we developed these, a kind of brazenness, I think, about spiritual gifts and prophecy in particular. And then 9-11 happened. And I think, at least my read, is that the, the cataclysm of 9-11, rather than humbling us, caused us to react out of fear. And rather than returning to a place of, of humility and prayer and discernment, we decided to use those gifts that we had been so confident in using in previous years and decades to use them to bring about the change we felt we needed to make the world safe again. 
And that didn't just dawn on me. I was teaching in the UK years ago, probably 10 years ago now, maybe not quite. And I ended up in a conversation there with a man. I, I, to this day, I don't know his name, but he had been a part of though. He was an older man. He'd been a part of prophetic movement. That's how he identified himself to me. And he's the one who said to me, everything changed after 9-11. And I said, tell me more. And his account was you know, that he's, and I won't name names, but that he had been friends for many years with these, the names every one of us thinks about when we think about the global prophetic movement. And that after 9-11, instead of their prayer meetings, prayer gatherings, being concerned about the work of God in the world, it be, more and more became, for those who were Americans and identified as Americans, it became about turning America back to God, saving America, making it safe again for us. And that that started us down a path that I think led to the recent, the recent elections. So I, I think that's at least one aspect of the story. I don't think that's all of it by any means, but I think that there was something about what happened to our consciousness in 9-11 and the aftermath of it that activated, pun intended, the worst kinds of presumption in us. And when and we thought, in, again, instead of hum, you know falling on our face before the Lord, what we thought is, oh, we have these powers that we know how to use. Why don't we use them for these things we believe will make the world right again? Yeah, so I, I, I think that's brilliant. Um, having been immersed in functioning in the prophetic from my earliest days of my journey with Jesus, um, God allowed me, um, if I look at the course of my life, I have been graced to connect with some of the leading men and women of God in three generations of Pentecostal charismatic um, tribes. How that happened has nothing to do with me, everything to do with whatever God was trying to make me aware of in my quest for a passion, I would say. Uh, and I wrote a book about it years ago called A Passion for the Glory. Um, and in, in that yearning, um, the, the church I was a part of, Salem Gospel Tabernacle, was a wonderful place of spiritual formation, but it had had in its own history a shakeup over the latter rain in 1948. And when that shakeup took place, one of the members of the church Claire Hutchins, who was the father of Carol Cimbala and father-in-law of Jim Cimbala, was sent down to Park Slope in Brooklyn to raise up Brooklyn Gospel Tabernacle, which was a daughter church of Salem Gospel Tabernacle. It was a way the elders chose to deal with their refusal to accept the latter rain. So by the time I came along, years later, what I heard about the latter rain was predominantly negative. They still embraced the gift of prophecy. And it was it, it and there were three or four people in the congregation 
in the 70s that if you got there 10 minutes late in worship, you missed those prophetic utterances and you weren't able to connect the dots between them prophesying and then Malcolm or Floyd getting up and preaching everything they prophesied, not knowing everything they would say would be confirmed when he would preach. I mean, I haven't seen those days in a long time. There was something sovereign about that in that era from 19, the year, late 1960s, early 1970s, that was just graced by the sovereign spirit. Now notice I said sovereign spirit because within Salem's tradition was the true Wesleyan Pentecostal awareness of the sovereignty of the spirit. So when I moved to Canada in our first position of ministry in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, I began to have encounters with men and women that were part of the actual latter rain outpouring in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, including Violet Kitely, who was 22 years old and was present in the very moment on Valentine's Day, February 14th, when Ern Houghton, who had a speech impediment, all of a sudden prophesied fluidly about the laying on of hands, the prophecy of the presbytery, and the establishing of ministries in the local church in preparation for the, for the glorious bride of Christ that would meet Jesus. Okay, so, and within that, there came this formation of what was called prophetic presbytery, which was done within a context of local church governance and oversight, where the entire church would be set apart in fasting and prayer and people that were going to be set in into particular places of function in the local church would be prepared by fasting and prayer so that when the prophets were brought in, when the presbytery was brought in, there would be three days of intense worship and praise. And from and depending on how the spirit led the prophets, they would bring those candidates up because they were sitting in a special place. There would be chairs laid out, laid out on, the, on the platform and they would kneel down and the prophets would begin to lay hands on them and defer to one another as the spirit of God would give utterance to what was going on in their lives. And I was, I was witness to those things. I was part of those things. Violet drew me into those. And I began to realize that whatever was reacted to by some of the old timers at Salem was predominantly their own prejudice against what God was doing. And it wasn't denying the sovereignty of the spirit because these men and women weren't just prophesying at the drop of a hat. They were waiting on God, seeking the face of God, and submitted to local church eldership so much so that there had to be an accountability that if these words didn't bear witness, throw them out. And they were judged publicly. They were judged by the local eldership. But I, I, I observed it first and foremost. And then when Violet brought me into it, and I began to realize there were some real miracles that took place in the lives of many people. And I know many people today who benefited greatly from those moments because of what it did to set the trajectory of their lives, both in local and international spheres. And so for me, um, you know, recognizing that God can speak both to a local church, because in those 
prophetic presbyteries, those, those prophets wouldn't just speak personal words. Their first governance in the stewardship of what God was giving was to the vision of the local church. And it would often, often be so radically confirming that no one in the house could deny these men are hearing what God has been saying through the elders and the pastors of this local congregation. So he that hath ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So these are part of the history that's ingrained in me. And it so, so there were words to the churches, which I was used to in Salem. But then there were words to those that were set apart for ministry. Um, and that could be children's ministry. That could be um, evangelism. That could be cell groups. But it was uniquely geared towards the uniqueness of those individuals. And none of us knew that. But they were prepared for that and being being groomed in those things. And it was always confirmatory. It was never directive. It was always the spirit was confirming through these gifts what was already known by the elders and by the people that were being prophesied over. Somewhere in the 1980s, when that generation began to pass away, the constraints of accountability and local church stewardship of that got lost and all of a sudden have prophecy will travel started happening. And all of a sudden these singular prophets were traveling and prophesying without any sense of accountability um, and, and no real sense of two or three speak the others judge um, it wasn't it, it, it and and it, it it got convoluted. Now at the same time, um, and I want to be careful how I say this, but within <laughs> that same framework in the 1970s, Russus J. Rush Dooney became a major voice along with Francis Schaeffer in the renewal movement. But J. J. Russus Rush Dooney um, began to proclaim by his book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, a presupposition that God was going to use the law to Christianize the nations, usher in a golden age, whereby then the Lord would have prepared in that golden age, the church um, to model the kingdom in the earth. But what that became now, that was, that was within the world of Protestantism, and particularly within the world of Presbyterian Protestantism. And it was an over-realized eschatology that, by the way, had its roots in the racial superiority of European white racism that carried over because Rush Dooney clearly had a perspective that the white race were superior. And we don't want to talk about that because we want, we want to ignore the notion of how that has affected where we are now, but but he clearly was embracing of a of a very European approach to um, Dutch Reformed Calvinism. I would say, Chris, you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But there was a very real sense in which much of that history worked its way into what then became in the second generation theonomy, and within that there was this overrealized eschatology that some who were well known in Pentecostal circles who don't necessarily um, want to buy into any minute Jesus is coming back 
went the other way into an over-realized post-millennialism and started believing that we could usher in the kingdom where now all of a sudden it is no longer the sovereign spirit. Now the theology becomes, because these gifts are resident within us, we have the power then to activate them and by prophetic utterance bring about change in the earth. Now for me, I'm not a, I'm not a post-millennialist. Uh, I believe in the now and the not yetness. I, there's a dialectic tension between where we are and where we're going. The kingdom cannot, we can't, in, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. I can't get past that. That for me is a, a, a non sequitur. I can't get past that. So, but what I've watched over the last 40 years that indeed increased post 9-11 was this all of a sudden the autonomy of the prophet where the, the prophet was the one who had the authority to initiate what God was doing. And I fundamentally have a problem with that because I don't think that's faithful theology. And I do believe, as Gordon Fee would argue, um, as a Pentecostal theologian, in the sovereign spirit as the one who stewards these things as he wills. And so what I see post 9-11, if I can piggyback on what Dr. Chris said, is that 9-11 ushered in the age of anxiety at a level that exceeded anything from the 50s on. The, the first, the 20th, 20th century was an age of anxiety. Every age has been an age of anxiety. Ex existential anxiety exists because of our fallenness and the fear of death. That's real. But it has exacerbated itself within the collective unconscious because of the rapid acceleration of technology and how that has made the world a much smaller place. 9-11 came into our homes, onto our television sets, and all of a sudden anxiety skyrocketed, not just in women, but in men. And um, we have been progressively living in an age of uncertainty since then. And the, the, the quest for certainty is appealing to a theology that says we have the authority to change this. I cannot separate what I know psychologically from what I know theologically. So I would argue that the increase of existential anxiety actually feeds into the narrative, and I believe it's a false narrative, that we can make something happen by our declarations and that we then replace the sovereign spirit. Uh, Chris, if you want to feed piggyback on that, go ahead. But that, that's where I would say, Dr. Kim. Yeah, I would right. think it sounds to me like um, the fear that you were mentioning, uh, Chris and uh, Mark, you mentioned the anxiety. So, you know, you touched on Christian nationalism and you touched on dominionism in, in some forms. And but they're both driven by fear and the attempt to to be in control of life so that we don't die. That's what it sounds like to me. Am I, yeah. am I understanding yeah. that? And that coupled that couple that with the, uh, the autonomy that, that has been taken by the prophetic movement and the, the lack of accountability and some of those things, it just fed right into that and infected and corrupted our, our prophetic function. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's what I would say, Chris. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right so many threads to draw up, but one of them would be once the prophetic starts to function 
as something other than confirmation of what the Spirit is doing in the local church. Right? You're, you're already alienated right, from the sovereign Spirit. And now, if it gets activated by fear, you can see, I think, pretty, pretty easily how we get where we are now. Right. I, I would argue that the the fundamental error happened long before 9-11, right? It had already that that shift to the prophet, the prophet as a as a maverick, as a lone gun, you know, operating apart from what the spirit is doing in the local church. I mean that that was already the fundamental mistake that then just gets it gets made toxic by the politics around 9-11 and the, the deep shared fear and anxiety that starts to control to control us. So, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. And I, I would add that most of the prophets would say we're not afraid, we're not anxious. And I'm what I'm talking about is a deep existential fear that actually underlies the entire human condition that they don't pay attention to. And so they live in a world of magical thinking and a bubble that do, and they don't even you know, uh, Dr. Chris can talk about this better than I do, but, but there, there are, you know, there's first order learning, there's second order learning, there, there are, we stay at a very shallow cryptic uh, approach to truth and never bother to do theology really well. We think if we memorize certain scriptures and regurgitate them, we've really got a theology. Well, we don't. There's no way, there's no way in which that works. And we fundamentally don't understand our way of being human and how our subjectivity as humans, as persons, interacts with the spirit. And then we endeavor to bring to speech a whole lot that's going on inside us that includes not just God, but our prejudices, our biases, our psychological projections, claiming we've got some, and then we use this, this computer term, a download, that fundamentally speaks against the nature of our humanness and how the spirit interacts with our intuitions, our cognitions, our perceptions, our, in, our, our memories, our reflections, the ways we have of being human. This totally bypasses that and creates a false impression and then creates this false understanding about how the spirit moves. So you have to ask yourself, how do you really know this is the spirit? Because it doesn't bear witness with, with the body of the sacred text and how the spirit moves in us as human beings. Um, and I think we've lost a lot that intuitively the latter rain prophets that mentored me, including Pastor Violet, they knew this intuitively. And even if they didn't fully have a theology explaining it, their practice revealed that they understood their subjectivity, their humanness, and the way in which they operated in a level of accountability. Oh, that's so important. And I think I, it, you know, it reminds me of when I, when I was pastoring uh, several years back, we had students go away to supernatural schools of ministry, you know, and they would come back with these um, uh, quips, you know, like little, one-liners some of them weren't even one-liners some of them were like five words you know and they would use them completely divorced of of theology and and some of them i knew the theology behind it they did not know you know some of it some of it i don't think that theology the theology behind it was correct but they would use them because because some of the 
celebrities, do we dare even get go to that, you know, in the in the church, or whatever, we're using some of these little sayings, these little sound bites, I called them, and without understanding any kind of theology. And so as they moved then from that into supernatural ministry, thinking they had it all down, they already were on a completely wrong track, you know, and and I think that we still do that a lot. I think I just feel like prophetic ministry has become very shallow. And of course, it has really begun to focus on, um, you know, on on prediction instead of, as I've heard you say many, many times, Mark, about, uh, you know, the cross and uh, uh, the crucified life and the cruciform life. And uh, and I, I think all of those things are very dangerous. So um, so. Chris, I could see you writing something down. So what did you have to say about that? <laughs> oh, I'm always jotting notes. But I, I think what Bishop said about magical thinking yeah. is a crucial part of this conversation. And the way that magical thinking works is, is it assumes there's a kind of mechanics that once you've learned how to leverage, you can get outcomes that you desire. So magical thinking is and often what we call supernatural turns out to just be magic and what i mean by that is it's not an openness to the living god and a trusting to his sovereign ways the assumption is there is a secret mechanism that i can learn to manipulate and once i've learned to manipulate it with this phrase right under a, a certain anointing or because so and so laid hands on me because I've been activated, you know, whatever the language is, what we're looking for are turns of phrase, a particular quirk. You know, I, I remember, you know, prophets who had particular techniques, you know, their hand would shake or they would drink olive oil or you know, whatever it happens to be. All of that stuff is looking for, I'm serious. I, I wish I were making that up, but I'm not. I've never seen that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so I'd rather he, have a nice glass of Italian wine. It would help. <laughs> I, I, it I, probably prophesied really, better. Right. There, there might not have been a move of God. I'm sure it led to some kind of move, however. But, but all of that. All of that stuff, right? And others would, you know, slap you with the Bible. There was one particular prophet in, in our circles who would throw his Bible at you, you know, it kind of anticipating the Benny Hinn coat wave or blowing on you. Like all of that stuff, right, was, was, a, was a kind of magical thinking. It was looking for yeah. a mechanics that would guarantee outcomes, that would get healings or blessings you know, another abstraction that usually reduces down to, I want my life to go a certain way. Yeah. And I, I think what happened with 9-11, not to keep coming back to that, but the questions about nationalism and dominionism is that we were already thinking that way, but we were thinking about our own personal futures. We wanted our best lives now. We wanted everything we wanted, and we wanted to find a way to get it now. And when we became anxious about the state of things, not just about our personal lives, but the state of things, we, and because we had been convinced that America, as America and Israel go, so goes the rest of the world, we started to use those same techniques, operating in that same magical thinking, to try to control geopolitics 
but it's the same mindset. It's the same ambition, which is I want, it's, it's a kind of alchemy. I want to make gold from nothing. All I have to do is find the secret, right? To turn lead into gold. And unfortunately there was a market for it. People were willing to show up. People were willing to pay for it. And I think that was coupled with, you know, so much of what ended up driving our addiction to pain medication, our addiction to talk show hosts and their provocations. Like, I, I think this is an aspect of a much larger problem, but the consequences are unspeakable, right? Like, and the, the short-term and long-term consequences are unspeakable. And, and one of them, as you've already said, Kim, is that it, it brings into question the legitimacy of prophecy itself, right? How could it not, right? When there's so much, so much abuse. So I want to talk about then from that, if we're going to, because prophecy to me is not an option, you know, the gift, gift of, it's, it's part of the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, and uh, which is, which is another pet peeve of mine hearing the anointing spoken about, like it's a force of some kind, some mystical, it's a person, it's the Holy Spirit, you know, and, um, but I think that the gift of prophecy is as an important gift. And I think that that recovering it in in its true form and in its true function is incredibly important. And if we will do that, and of course, that remains to be seen. And, you know, but God is working, you know, um, he's always working. And so but if we do that, I think that it's it just is such a powerful it's, it's a powerful gift because we have a powerful God. And so, and so I want to talk about the gift of prophecy and, and what it, what it really is supposed to be like, what it really, and uh, be, while well, I have you captive <laughs> right here. And so, you know, how would you define the gift of prophecy? What, what, what is, what is it really? Because I don't think that we, I, I don't think that we really talk about that a whole lot we think of it as um, is sort of a parlor trick in, in many ways, you know, and uh, I love, I'm going to start with you, Chris, because I was listening to one of your uh, speakeasy theology and uh, I think it was the seven fires, the seven fires of the spirit. Is that what it was called? Yeah, anyway, right. you were with Bradley Jerzak. I think that's his name. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, but you made a comment that I was, that I actually out loud said, amen. You know, you said, uh, you said, we sort of need a prophets anonymous. <laughs> I love because, because, um, and I, and I think that you've all touched on this a little bit already. The, uh, the responsibility for treating this gift with, with soberness and with, you know, for the holiness that it is, you know, um, I think is not just with, the prophets are the ones who are prophesying. I think the whole church is responsible. I think it's the responsible responsibility of the entire church. So because churches have become addicted to uh, predictive prophecy and they have become addicted to uh, the words of knowledge thing, calling out someone's name and address and, and birth date and these kinds of things as though that's proof that this is from the Lord, 
you know, and, um, and, and I have problem with that, but so let's talk a bit, let's just back up a little bit. What is, what, what do we mean when we talk about the gift of prophecy? Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer that first. I, I would like to come back to this question that you've raised here about why are people drawn to this? I mean, long before yeah. we were alive, long before there was even anything called the charismatic movement, anything called Christianity, as long as there have been human beings, there's been divination. There's been this desire to find a way to divine the future and to control the outcomes of the future. Right? So that yeah. this is this is something deeply rooted in our fear of death. I think what Hebrews talks about and the as the fear the enemy has used to cause our bondage. So I think we're right at the heart of what sin is. So the fact that so much of the Pentecostal charismatic movement has been marked by sinful abuses of prophecy should not surprise us. This is the human story. Right. But we can come back to that. To your question, I don't think we can define it because of what you said just a moment ago. Prophecy is the work of the spirit. The spirit is God. The Spirit is the living, infinite, eternal God. So when we talk about prophecy, we're trying to point to something that exceeds our categories. Now, we can identify aspects of it. We can describe parts of what we've seen. But I don't think we can define it exhaustively, because ultimately, when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about one of the ways in which humans collaborate with the Creator God. And it is, it's tied to speaking, but again, that's mysterious. I mean, how, where are the real limits of speaking? I mean, obviously, it's easy to identify what it isn't when it goes wrong, uh, false prophecy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's easy to see, well, it should be easy to see when it's done in ways that are canonical, Isaiah, Jeremiah, so on. But I do think we have to leave room for there's more the spirit is doing that is truly prophetic than our accounts can ever catch up to. Right. So with, with that qualification, right, which is what you get when you have a theology professor talking about these things, I, I would say at, at its heart, and this is not exhaustive and this can come in all kinds of forms, but at, at its heart, prophecy is speaking the words. The word is speaking. It's speaking the words, the word is speaking, right? It's getting said what Jesus as the head of the church wants said yeah. in a particular moment. Yeah. Now, I don't want that to be too narrowly conceived, but generally I think that that holds. Dr. Sharna? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think one of the challenges, again, we face in contemporary culture is we want everything one, two, three, so that we can control it. Yep. So that when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians about the charisms, there is, we, he speaks of the utterance of prophecy and the utterance of knowledge, the utterance of wisdom. Utterance can be declarative. Utterance can be prescriptive. Utterance as a speech act. I can say, shh, 
It's not a word, but I'm performing an act when I say, shh, that if you are going to obey that word, you're going to not say a word. I'm, I'm, I'm inviting silence. When I, so shh could actually be an utterance because wind is passing through my vocal cords and creating a sound that creates a communication that is saying silence is called for right now. And the Lord- Wish you would have done that a while back. I think we needed that a little bit on social media. (laughs) The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And we did that as Presbyterians really well until my grandfather would snore in the back of the church and it would break the silence. That was, we didn't hear any talking in tongues. We just heard grandpa snoring because the (laughs) the preacher was so able to put him in heavenly rest that he went right to sleep. Um, But, but utterances, um, you know, when we talk about the use of words, the testimony, martyria of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I, I see that clearly The spirit is the Holy Spirit himself, the testimony of Jesus. So we have Jesus as the witness, the cross-shaped witness, and the spirit as the prophetic spirit work together in tandem to reveal the intention of God the Father. And when John the Beloved, and okay, let me just say, when, when the revelator says, tells us that story, um, and the reason I say that is because many of the scholars don't believe it was John, but I'm right and they're wrong, but that's okay. So, so we'll just leave that. I take Irenaeus for that and I'm going to stay. I, that's my word and I'm sticking to it. But the okay. fact is, here we are in this moment in Revelation 19, almost at the end of this entire series of visions. And John mistakes a fellow servant for Jesus. And falls down to worship him. Now, it's happened before, but at this point, he's rebuked because he's on the border of idolatry. And and the fellow servant says, stop doing that. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And what's really being said there is that this servant, whether this is an angelic servant or whether this is a human that's perfected in righteousness, beholding the beatific vision, John can't tell the difference between Jesus and the person. They have become so one that this servant is now such a perfect partaker of the divine nature. John mistakes the person for the one who is cross-shaped in everything he does. And that moves him to worship. And so I would argue that if it doesn't move us by the cross to worshiping the triune God, it isn't prophecy. The litmus test has to be, does it end in causing me to fall on my face and worship Christ as the expression of the invisible triune God? Does that pass muster, public theologian, sir, scholar, and great emissary of the kingdom? (laughs) Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think, what I mean when I say, when Jesus speaks, you're, you're not going to, his word knocks us down one way or another, right? And if it's truly him speaking, we're going to end up on our faces one way or another, on our knees one way or another. And I think if that's not happening, that tells you what you need to know. Yeah. 
I also I also think that, you know, and, and look, I, I happen to think Howard Carter was a great hero in Pentecost. And his book on the gifts of the spirit from a Pentecostal perspective is a classic where I might part company with Howard Carter and favor the more traditional view is that what we call word of knowledge and word of wisdom actually would be considered in the early church under the umbrella of prophecy. Whereas utterance of knowledge and utterance of wisdom isn't some word about the past or a word about the future, as it is a revelation of a knowing of the triune God that's given in a moment and a revelation of wisdom about the triune God. It's not some specific word about you live at such and such a place. That would fall under the rubric of prophecy uh, in the early church and in the fathers. Uh, Chris, you can correct me on that if you want, but but... Um, most of even the Pentecostal scholars that I've studied that look at knowledge and wisdom, utterance of knowledge, utterance of wisdom, as Pentecostals would say, we've missed it here. Mm-hmm. Um, what We need to see that in relationship to prophecy and see these things as actual spontaneous utterances that contain the wisdom of God, re- revealing something of Christ as the wisdom of God. And this intimacy of the knowing of God, this knowledge of God. I, Chris, go ahead and maybe give some feedback on that. You can push back. I'm okay. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think that those, those categories have to be held not rigidly, but suggestively, right? They're, they're a kind of heuristic to help us get oriented. But ultimately, all of that is the work of the Spirit. In, in Corinthians, Paul says, no one can say Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. And I think what he means is, exactly what Bishop has been saying. Where the Spirit is operative, Christ's Lordship is established. That's how you know the Spirit is working, that our lives begin to take on the cross's shape. Right? We, we begin to sound like Jesus and smell like Jesus. In, in the language of Paul elsewhere, you know, we, we give off the fragrance that Jesus gives off to his Father. We give off that same fragrance. And that's what the Spirit is doing, Right? And the Spirit can do this in like myriad ways. And I think that's what Paul is listing. Like it could be this, it could be that, it could be this other thing. But all of them ultimately are just ways of suggesting how the Spirit gets Jesus' Lordship to be effective in our lives. So that our lives, again, start to be shaped and directed by it. And it has very little to do with prediction, if anything. But that, that's not the ways in which this spirit works. That can happen. And mm-hmm. I think there are ways in which there are predictive aspects. But the work of the spirit is not to simply tell us the future, but to make us like Jesus. And if there's any future revealing going on, it is only to that end, only ever to that end. And one one thing that's kind of, boiling under the surface here is I I think we've confused stuff we can't explain and the mysteries of our own hearts for the holy. And I, I don't think everything that happens that I would call false prophecy is the result of people who are intentionally misleading the sheep. Right. I think there are those people. There are more of those people than we would like to think that are wolves in sheep clothing. 
But I think there are a lot of shepherds who have taken on habits of the wolves, even though their heart isn't wolfish, or at least not their intentions are not. They don't desire to be wolfish, but they've never allowed God to actually deal with the wolf in them. And so that's what comes out. And I think a lot, and I, I don't want to put a number to it, that would be silly, but I think a lot of what we call the supernatural is just the unconscious being yeah. allowed to run rampant. Absolutely. Right? It's just like you, I don't remember if we were recording when you shared this or not, but when you were at that church and you were invited to just turn and speak a prophetic word to people around you, that was not yeah. prophecy. That was just don't guard your heart. Just let something spill out of you, anything spill out of you. Mm-hmm. And what's happened in our in our search for that alchemy, in that magical search for the, the words, the techniques that are going to bring about the outcomes we've wanted, we've kind of stumbled into, hey, sometimes when you just let your deep heart run wild, things happen. And that's true. I mean, things come up out of you that you didn't know were there. Deep traumas, deep hopes, like all, all so much is in your heart. Out of it are the issues of life. And a lot, and again, I'm not going to put a number on it, but a huge portion of what we're calling the supernatural is just the uncanny and the unconscious. At least that's my read of it. And a huge portion of what we think of as just natural or normal is in fact also the domain of the spirit. And until we yes. recognize that the spirit is not more operative in the things that I can't explain than the spirit is in operative than is operative in the things I think I can explain, we're never going to recognize how much of this is just us closing our eyes and pretending that we're we're invisible now, right? It, it's it's a kind of a kind of game that a lot of people have bought into, but that doesn't make it any less silly or any less dangerous. One, one, if I can just piggyback on what yeah. Chris just said, in the last 300 years or 200 years in, in, in um, Western thinking, the term unconscious has become used because Freud brought it to the forefront. However, while we may think the term unconscious is relatively recent, the notion of the function of the unconscious has been known since the ancient world. And while they didn't use those terminologies, if we were to read, let's say, Evagrius Ponticus, or if we were to read John Cassian, or John of the Cross, or even Maximus, when they speak of the operations of the soul, they go really deep, and they deal with deep-rooted urges, promptings, yearnings, desires, passions, and they were committed to the cure of souls. And I yeah. think we have got to recover the cure of souls if we really believe that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are for the equipping of the saints. That word equipping is the word, it's a medical term describing a bone that has a compound fracture that needs to be healed and put back in place. And I do think that apart from an understanding that the purpose of all the Ascension Gift Ministries is the cure of souls and the healing of the human condition so that we can adequately tell the story of Jesus and how he takes our brokenness and makes it part of our history and redemption. 
I think we're going to keep coming up with techniques to get happy and excited that have nothing to do with the testimony of Jesus. I think that's really true. I remember hearing um, the two of you speak about prophecy and Chris, you said that prophecy was the fullness of Jesus in me speaking to the fullness or in order to bring out the fullness of Jesus in you. And I made you explain that because I needed to have more understanding of what exactly that looked like. Um, and I agree. And I, and, um, and I think that that's, you know, sort of what we're talking about that uh, with, when you mentioned the cure of souls, that's what comes to my mind. Um, because I remember when I was in seminary and I had to take, they forced me to take a class uh, about being a pastor and I didn't want to, cause I, I thought being a pastor was the worst uh, was the worst position in the church in the world because to me it was very codependent and it made me sort of you know and so when but when the, the professor explained to me that originally to be a pastor was to be in the business of well to be in the ministry of the cure of souls and making a people ready to participate with God in the fullness of who he created them to be, to bring about his purposes. Um, I, I was okay. I can, I can get behind that. I love, I love that. And, uh, and that sort of speaks to all of this, but so if, uh, Mark, I have heard you say, uh, uh, there's so much that I want to have you guys talk about. I'm like trying to just decide where to go. Cause if I go here, then we won't, we won't go back here. But I have heard you say many times you always, when you remark, you call it prophetic function. And I have to admit, and I have admitted to you that I don't really understand what you mean. I think I would, if you explained it, but that's different to you. It's different than just talking about the gift of prophecy. You like to call it, prophetic function can you speak to that a little bit yeah so and why why is that important to you especially in a time like this okay so when when we think of the way in which we embody and express the divine mm -hmm. um there are certain particularities distinctions that are indeed prophetic that particularity can be seen in a Jeremiah who laments and weeps. That particularity can be seen in the shifting of a metaphor in the mouth of Moses when in endeavoring to bring a people that have been enslaved for 430 years to believe that there's life beyond that enslavement, he tells them, metaphorically that you've never seen this before but i assure you there's a land that flows with milk and honey now land doesn't flow and but milk and honey do flow so this radical reorientation by use of words that have the power to reshape and re-imprint the imagination and the memory that's a function of the prophetic when Jeremiah says, oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears, that's prophetic function. When God says, Jeremiah, what do you see? I see an almond tree in blossom in early February. You have seen well. That's a prophetic function. So 
I prefer to call it prophetic function because it doesn't narrow down to I'm going to open my mouth and prophesy, bah, 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 but that I am open to the movements, the promptings, the urgings, the hunches, the nudges that are generated by the, the spirit who indwells me. And I'm doing my best in my frail, limited human ways of communicating to clothe those nudges with my own speech. I'm not, I'm, 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 God speaks to me at the core of my being. I've got to clothe that in the best way I can through the vessel that I am. So prophetic function has to consider the totality of my humanness and my cooperation with the sovereign spirit in bringing that to bear on whether I'm talking about the alteration of someone's way of imagining, the getting in touch with the grief of loss and the mourning that precedes the travail for the kingdom, all of that kind of stuff. And I, I don't think we can limit it to one thing. Does that help? Yeah, it does. I, I totally understand that. I think that's really good. I think it goes back to what Chris was saying about because prophecy is a is a work of the spirit it's because it's the spirit he's the spirit of prophecy who's god we can't limit what the gift of prophecy really is and i think that we have a narrow a narrow view of that usually and um and there was something oh okay so so can everyone engage can everyone uh prophesy when it comes to the prophetic functions because paul says all all may prophesy of course in that passage in first corinthians but um and and my second question to you is is and chris jump in whenever you want to but but um you talk a lot about reading the signs i know you're you're semi semiotician and and so you know and and I love all that, by the way. And so, you know, being able to read the signs and interpret the signs, I think that also is part of prophetic function, wouldn't it be? And um, so may I prophesy. And what's the difference between operating in a prophetic function, like engage, you know, and and being a prophet? I, you know. I'll leave it there. You can answer however you want. <laughs> I know I asked five different things in one question, scholar. but I'm curious. I'll, I'll defer to the public scholar and then I'll. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think this may take us too, too far. We might have to do another, another recording some other time to talk about this, but okay. I think the, in the, in the early 1900s, like we, we start to have breakthroughs in physics. Einstein is the most famous name associated with these breakthroughs that eventually leads to what, is now called quantum mechanics, the realization that the deeper you go in the study of our universe, the more you realize that there our reality functions in ways that are mysterious. Right? So at the physical level, there are laws, there's a nature that's operative in a certain way. But at the subatomic level, at the quantum level, there are other laws that seem not to be bound by the laws of the physical, right? So what we have is this realization that we don't even understand the world we think we understand, right? 
So when scientists are doing physics, what they're coming up against is we can't explain a lot of this, but even the stuff we can't explain at its depths operates differently from our explanations power to, to make clear. So I think something like that is true of all things because of, as a Christian, we're convinced that's because all things ultimately are kept alive in the life of Jesus. He is the one through whom and for whom and in whom all things exist. All things hold together in him. Right. So if you keep going down into the depths of the depths of the depths of any created thing, what you find there is the living life of Jesus. You find him. Right. He is not far from any of us because it is his breath that's keeping all things in existence. It's his life. It's his mind. It's his heart that's keeping all things in being. So I think I say all that to say we've operated with an incredibly simplistic account of prophecy because we've operated with an incredibly simplistic account of everything. Right. God, nature, sin, the devil, whatever. And we at least the way that I was trained, we essentially grouped everything into either natural or supernatural. Yeah, and we what did. we meant by supernatural is that's the stuff we can't explain or control. Right. The natural we get, we, we know what that is. And then we relegated God and the devil to the supernatural realm. And we imagined it as some kind of conflict. There's a supernatural, there's a war in the spiritual realm. And the supernatural is those dimensions of our lives that we just don't understand. And then we started to claim that we could. Actually, we can figure out the laws of the supernatural. Laws like sowing and reaping, they work in the supernatural as well as the natural. Right? All of this supposed breakthrough, supposed revelations, were about how do we operate in the supernatural with the same kind of control and confidence that we think we have in the natural. Right. All of that is just mistaken. <laughs> That's not how any of this works. Right. God is not only operative in the supernatural. The spirit is not limited to those things that I can't explain. Yeah. The spirit is every bit as much at work in what seems to me to be natural or normal. So to give just yes. one obvious example, if I break my arm and six months later, it's back to normal. I don't I wasn't taught to think of that as a miracle. But the fact is, God is no less involved in that. The Spirit is no less working health into me in that way than if I broke my arm today and you prayed for it and 10 minutes later it was well again. Yeah. Right? So until we get free of that simplistic account of things, we're going to keep mm -hmm. falling for everything we can't explain as if that must be God. And we're going to keep missing what God is doing in the stuff we think we understand. Right? And I, I, so to me, this is at the heart, at the root of our, this is why we keep falling for these temptations. The same yeah. tricks over and over and over again is that we're looking for God in all the wrong places. We're limiting God and, and not aware of our own depth and the complexity of what it means to be human. There's so much, I have a capacity to know in ways I can't explain. But that doesn't mean I have the gift of prophecy. Just because I intuit something that I don't know how I intuited it doesn't mean somehow that I'm a prophet. Right? It means there are capacities in my soul that I haven't fully caught up to yet. Right? And those things are present in all human beings. 
right? I think what we need to say instead is that God is at work in all things at all times in order to bring about the revelation of Jesus and the restoration of all things in Jesus. That's what prophecy is about. And a lot of this stuff, it's not prophecy. It's just odd. Right? It's just inexplicable to us. I'll give one yeah. example. And I'll let Bishop correct whatever needs to be corrected here. It's <laughs> Aquinas, who's a medieval theologian, one of the doctors of the church. He has a section on miracles in, in one of his books. And he talks about how many people confuse a natural phenomenon that they do not understand for a miracle. And he, he draws up the example of the, the star that the Magi see. And he says, what's miraculous there is not the star, but their recognition of it, their being led by it to Jesus. But that a lot of people see something in the heavens they can't explain, a shooting star, an eclipse, or whatever else. And he says, because of their ignorance, they think they have seen an act of God. Because of their ignorance, they think they have seen an act of God. That, that's what we're dealing with, I think. Like, overwhelmingly, most of this stuff is not God. It's just our ignorance misreading what we can't explain as somehow supernatural. And we're missing all of the stars that are supposed to be leading us to Jesus because we're looking for spooky stuff, right? So my rant is over. That's fabulous. Let, let, me, let me talk about um, the First Corinthians passage. First, yeah. first and foremost, let me say this. Um, I'm speaking now from some aspect of my studies, but the other aspect of 48 years of being immersed in the tradition of Pentecost and exercising um, the ways in which the charisms have operated and the way I've seen them operate, not just in me, but in many others and in local churches in general. So I'm speaking from that. But I also am very aware of some of the Pentecostal scholars that are New Testament scholars that have commented on um, Paul's epistles. Um, I would certainly love to hear today how Anijay Gupta might critique what I'm about to say, because I would defer to him without any question because of his brilliance in terms of um, New Testament scholarship. But when Paul is addressing the Corinthians in relationship to the charisms, He's not teaching them how to operate in the gifts. They're already doing whatever they're doing. He is seeking to correct their abuse of their expression. And so you've got all these people in Corinth that think they're super spiritual because they talk in tongues and they can prophesy. And a number of them want to get their word in edgewise in the meeting. And Paul is saying, y'all can prophesy, but let it be at the most two or three of you um, and let the others judge. He's not saying, I don't think he's saying there every single believer can prophesy. I think that's a fundamental misreading. I think that's a surface reading of the text. I think it misrepresents what Paul is addressing in that context. And I think it lends itself to the kind of, well, if we all can prophesy, let's all turn around and prophesy over one another in meaning. And I think that's a fundamentally flawed way of reading that text and gets us in a lot of trouble. And I've seen this firsthand again and again and again. I would argue that not everybody is given to the utterance gifts. He gives severally as he wills, not as we will. So I would argue that not everybody can do that. 
I would also argue that what he's talking about specifically there is the utterance gift of prophecy. And that in that setting, Paul is saying, y'all need to calm down. And the two or three of you that are going to speak, the rest of you defer and let two or three say it and let everyone then judge it and see, take the meat from the bones. But I don't think um, Paul is saying there that every single Christian can prophesy in the sense of the charismatic utterance gift. Now, does that mean that, 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 that the rules can't change at some point? You're walking down the street and you meet somebody and you get an impression about something and you share it. Sure. But as a general rule, if I look at what Paul is saying in relationship to a public assembly and a meeting, he's not giving everybody carte blanche and saying, y'all ought to practice prophesying and then, uh, you know, pick whichever one you want um, whenever you want it. I, I don't think he's saying that. Uh, Chris, you want to weigh in on that before um, I get too much in too much trouble? No, I mean, I, th I think that that's what I would say, too. And I think that's what the tradition holds up, that as a general rule, as a as a, a kind of law that operates to direct our practices, not everyone prophesies. But at any given time, Balaam's ass may speak. Right. Like, like that's <laughs> we have to be open to that, right? God is a rule. God is a rule breaker as well as a rule maker. Right. Yes. And the Sabbath. I think what we what Jesus says about the Sabbath applies to all things. It was made for us, not us for it. So the gift of prophecy exists for us, not the other way around. And I think in general, there are, not everyone is a prophet. Thank God. <laughs> um, yeah, he gave some as some. And some. I would distinguish yeah, between Ephesians for prophets and the charismatic gift of prophecy. And in neither case would I argue that everybody can do that. I, I agree on all accounts. My only caveat would be, and right when we get comfortable with that as a rule, right. God God he'll break it. God laughs, yeah. right? <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna add that and I, I don't I, I'm not on your level at all with brilliance, but I was I was going to say, and yet God can do anything he darn well pleases because he's God. And uh, and so he can break in on anyone and and give them a prophetic word and uh, an utterance, you know. But I think that on the whole, uh, I think as a normal as a normal function, I would totally agree with you on all of that. And with that, we're going to have to bring it down and close it. And please tell me that you will come back so we can finish this conversation. Cause I have about a million more questions to ask you and I trust your answers. And I think this is so important. And uh, so I will, if that's amenable to you, I will arrange that with you at a date that is convenient for the two of you. I have so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for, for coming and thank you for, for giving of your wisdom and knowledge and, um, and what amazing, what amazing thing. And Bishop, would you pray for us as we, as we close this out? Sure. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your wisdom, and your guidance as you give it to us in Jesus by the Spirit. Thank you for the way conversations lead us to clarity when we are desirous of knowing the truth. 
I pray, Father, that you would cause everyone that hears to listen and reflect and ponder and consider and allow the Spirit himself to shape and form them in the Spirit of Christ through the cross so that they might participate with him in that great mission of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. We give you thanks for the opportunity to share with one another. Bless it and multiply it according to your wisdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. And I hope that you will come back again and listen more when we uh, reschedule a new one to talk with Dr. Chris Green and Dr. Mark Sharona Bishop Mark Sharona, pastors, bishops, they're everything. And, uh, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for the Move Forward podcast. We would love for you to rate this podcast and share it with a friend. You can connect with Dr. Kim on social media. For those links and more, visit her website, kimmoss.com. Host Dr. Kim Moss leads Kim Moss Ministries and Women of Our Time. She is the author of Prophetic Community, The Way of the Kingdom, Facing Ziklag, and The Four Questions. You can find those books on Amazon. Remember, never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. <laughs>